The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. Boris Johnson, more flip-flops than Ko Samui. I think in this case, the public policy response to this illness has caused more harm than the illness itself. I never thought Alison Pearson would re-emerge from her holiday as a BMX expert. Do you think I can get a year's supply of G&T if I agree to have my booster in October? Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, we should say welcome back because we've been incommunicado for the past fortnight. But now we're here with attitude. So strap yourself in and brace, brace. Co-pilot Pearson's been sunning her buns in Greece and so (laughs) chilled out and revitalised is she by her holiday and her house move, she's taken up making jam. Finally completing the transformation from working class girl from the Welsh Valleys <laughs> into the comfort of England's respectable middle class. <laughs> but when it comes to her journalism, fear not. Not even a John Lewis gold card and countless Jerusalem renditions contain the Welsh pit pony. Both your planet normal co-pilots, in fact, are gobsmacked by the ongoing lack of grip displayed by Her Majesty's government. On again, off again travel restrictions and increasingly testy cabinets emerging tensions between Prime Minister and Chancellor, and now even Britain's magnificent vaccine rollout is significantly slowing. COVID infections are down co-pilot by some 20% over the last week. The link between cases and hospitalisations and deaths is so much weaker than it was. But it seems like the Prime Minister can't quite bring himself finally to allow the country to put this pandemic firmly behind us. No wonder you've taken refuge in making jam. (laughs) Back off, Halligan. Listen, are preserves the preserve of the middle class? I I don't know. I had some blackcurrants in my new garden and I boiled them up with some sugar. Yeah, you're only jealous. I'll give you a jar. That will shut you up. We've been off, haven't we? Away from the madness. It It was very, very nice, I have to say, to get away from the kind of lunacy that is the United Kingdom. So tell us where you went and what you did. Well, I was going to go to Turkey and where I normally go to a lovely fishing village. But of course, that was on the red list, even though it's got Turkey has about a tenth of the cases of the UK. But as we know, the traffic light system with its, I think it's got five or six lights on it now, hasn't it? The traffic light system is just all over the place. So I decided to go to a Greek island and you know, it, it is a bit. It is a bit of a mission, Liam. You know, you obviously have to fill in this passenger locator form. You're supposed to have your NHS app ready. I had a negative test before I went. You have to take the paperwork for that. Got off the plane in Skiathos. They, you know, shoved another pipe cleaner up my nose. I said to the nice nurse who was doing it, "I don't really agree with this. I've just had a negative test." She said, "I don't agree with it either." Ask the government, and then before you're coming back. You have to have another proof of negative test. And then uh, when you land, you have to have your day two test, which I actually had done at the airport. And and these things, they cost a fortune, co-pilot. It's absolute racket. And as you wrote in this week's column, and of course, as ever, the link to that is in the show notes of this episode. It is a racket. And the UK seems to be an outlier. Mm. It seems that our hardworking families are paying far more they're not only getting things stuck up their nose, they're paying through the nose. 
They absolutely are. And I've been amazed, Liam, getting the reaction to the column. I've heard from readers in Belgium who say that the Belgian government gives, gives free tests to the unvaccinated. If they, if they want to travel, other countries just have many fewer restrictions. So just to give you an example, actually, something I mentioned in the column, a friend had gone to Mallorca with her family of four. She said the flights cost 800 quid, but the tests for two adults and two uh, teenage offspring were 500 pounds. Now, in theory, you're supposed to be able to purchase a test for as little as 23 pounds on the government website, which lists the providers you're supposed to use. The cheapest I could find when I was in Greece was 82 quid. And there's a really damning report this week from the Advertising Standards Authority, which says that of the 50 least costly options, they discovered that two thirds of them couldn't be ordered. And the appointments for the on-site tests were not available until next month, by which time you'd be in jail. Somebody's making serious money out of this. Somebody is making an awful lot of money. And I just think that people, I mean, when I was in Greece, coming across German people and French people and Belgians, and they're just absolutely incredulous at what's going on in the UK. And I think it can only be, Liam, to deter us from travelling at all. And, and, And something else, which I know you liked in the column, was I worked out that because on Monday of this week, they relax some restrictions. So anybody now can fly in from the US or from the EU to the UK and not have to quarantine. But if you are British people and you happen to be staying in France, you cannot come back to your own place of birth without going into quarantine, even if you're double jabbed and have proof of a negative test. I mean, we are disadvantaging our own citizens. And I think, frankly, Boris is looking increasingly hapless and absurd. And they've had to this week, you'd have noticed, co-pilot, make a screeching U-turn. They were going to introduce another colour to the traffic lights, which was going to be enhanced amber. So people going... Amber watch. Amber watch. Amber watch. You're right, amber watch. So people say again to Spain, if it was amber watch could fly out there to be told that it could go red at any moment. So I think this is really... So then the, if it goes red, you've then got to spend 10 days in a government hotel, literally <laughs> under lock and key, so you can't go back to work. 1,750 quid for, you know, Salmonella Sani, somewhere off the M25. And what we saw this week, which I think was actually very politically intriguing was it was made known in the Sunday papers, wasn't it, that Rishi Sunak had delivered a letter to his next door neighbour, basically pointing out that the huge advantage which has been bestowed by our world-beating vaccine programme has basically been pissed away. Don't think, uh, don't think Mr Sunak used the term, the technical term pissed away, but being squandered by travel restrictions, which the Chancellor said were out of step with our international competitors. So I think that's what triggered the rapid ditching of the enhanced amber category. But seriously, Liam, Boris Johnson, more flip-flops than Koh Samui. That well-known Thai <laughs> island. Cabinet is testy, isn't it? It wasn't just Rishi's letter, which somehow found its way to the press, a Rubicon being crossed there with open black arts Westminster briefing 
between Prime Minister and Chancellor. It's not unusual, of course. I mean, let's ask Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, shall we? But we didn't expect it between Boris Johnson and, and Rishi Sunak. And then you had the Prime Minister, as you say, you turning on the Amber watch list, tweaking the app, the NHS app, mm. because the pandemic has closed down or threatened so many businesses, uh, railway services, bus services, even the NHS itself. There does seem to be a sense that even though cases are down now, 20%, the seven-day moving average has fallen 20% over the last week, even though we had Freedom Day. That's a significant thing. Yeah. We had Freedom Day on July the 19th, so-called, and yet cases are still down despite those new freedoms. It does seem to me that Boris Johnson just can't bring himself to take the risk and accept that we are now through this pandemic. There will, of course, be a rise in cases when the kids go back to school. On the other hand, you know, hospitalizations and deaths are now very low, as I think you pointed out in your column, Alison. In June, COVID was only the 26th most important cause of death in the UK. Yes, it's the summer. Yes, respiratory infections are less serious during the summer, less prolific. But it does now seem that the government's almost looking for excuses to not fully open up. You know, look at the politics of all this. Nicola Sturgeon, having said the government was reckless to do anything in terms of opening up, she's now brought her day when double jabbed people, if they get pinged, don't have to self-isolate. Our day in England is the 16th of August. Hers is now the 9th of August. Yeah. So the opportunistic as she is, then inviting Boris up to uh, see her in Butte House in Scotland, knowing that the last time he went there, <laughs> he was basically ambushed by a bunch of SNP protesters. <laughs> so they could they could get Boris being barracked north of the border on the tea time news. She's also now jumped ahead of him. Yes, masks will stay in Scotland, mandatory, as in Wales, but not in England. But the day when you don't have to self-isolate if you're pinged by the NHS app, if you're double jabbed in Scotland is now earlier, we've just had the announcement, than it is in England. So these are very fraught political times. And I do think it's significant that you've now got sort of open rift between Boris uh, and Rishi and the Prime Minister clearly reacting to his own backbenchers responding to the Chancellor's letter, even when Parliament is in recess. Yes, and did you see a very telling survey for the Conservative Home? That's a, a survey of actual Conservative Party members. I mean, Boris's popularity, I mean, he's down at the bottom of the bin with Gavin Williamson, Liam. I mean, you know, I think he's got kind of 3% or something. And this is what I've been picking up in the last few months. I know that the, the polls for the Conservatives have been looking very, very good. But the feedback I'm getting from Telegraph readers, these are the absolute, you know, rock solid loyalists, people saying they've torn up their party membership card, they'll never vote for them again. I mean, I, I, I think it's extremely widespread. A couple of things, Liam. So you remember our nemesis, Professor Neil Ferguson, he predicted before Planet Normal went Doctor on hold, Doctor Doom, he had predicted that by now we would have 100,000 cases a day. And when he was confronted with that on the Today programme, he literally said, well, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm happy to be wrong in the right direction. 
I just thought it was absolutely breathtaking arrogance. In what line of work would you be able to be so wrong, so far out? Imagine if you were a bond dealer, you'd be basically told to clear your desk and get out, wouldn't you? Absolutely <laughs> astonishing. You'd be given the bin bag, as they say in the city. Here's a bin bag. You've got ten minutes to to collect your stuff and go with the with some some bloke in chewing gum and a security guard's uniform standing next to you. Absolutely, but this is the guy. That, these predictions: the hundred thousand cases a day, actual decisions by the government, which have enormous impact on people's lives, are are based on these, you know, ridiculous mathematical models. And that brings us now to kind of one of the stories of the week, which I find pretty disturbing. So two weeks ago, as we were recording our our last Planet Normal before the break, you'll remember, Liam, that the JCVI, which is the, the Joint Vaccination Committee, they said that the benefits of vaccinating children did not outweigh the risk. And I think we both discussed that and we I thought that was, you know, I thought that was the the right decision. Do you only really vaccinate children when they're at threat from something? Any parent will remember, you know, taking the baby in for the MMR and you give them the MMR because if they get measles, they could be very, very ill. If they get mumps, they could be sterile. There are good reasons. There's not a good reason for, for an individual child or teenager to have a COVID jab. So, but now we learn that there's a, a change of heart that vaccinating of 16 and 17 year olds is going to be given the go ahead. Have have our vaccine experts been lent on, Halligan? What do you think? It's very difficult to say. And I I don't think it's going to stop here. It's interesting. Maybe Nicola Sturgeon knew this was coming just a couple of days before this new advice came from the, the JCVI, as you say. And Nicola Sturgeon said that she'd be in favour of 16 and 17-year-olds being vaccinated. And I think there'll be pressure for it to go further. I, I think we'll see the government offering vaccines to children as young as 12 and maybe even younger. Four-year-olds get the flu jab. It's not something that I support. I, like you, don't think it's necessary. What I don't think we'll see in the UK, and I say this with relief and just a tiny bit of pride, if you like, I don't think we'll go down the route that some countries have taken of compulsory vaccines for children. There are some countries where if your kid isn't vaccinated, they don't go to school. And I don't think we're going to get to that point in the UK. I think there are many parents who will be shocked that children below the age of 18, maybe even below the age of 16, are being vaccinated. But I also think there are quite a lot of parents who will just vaccinate their kids and be done with it not because they care less about their children in any way. They, they may, you know, it's, it's not a value judgment. It's just how the parents feel. My concern, Alison, is that even though I don't think there'll be compulsory vaccination of children in this country, as there is in some other countries, I do worry that kids who aren't vaccinated will miss out in some way. I do think Definitely. there will be certain group activities where children are required to be vaccinated even though the government stops short of making that mandatory. And so there will be an enormous hoo-ha 
about this. And you have to wonder, Alison, when the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, the excellent Office for National Statistics, which we have rightly lauded for doing stellar work mm. throughout this pandemic, they, they run very wide ranging infection surveys and they've presented their statistics throughout in a clear way. And we've always encouraged Plant Normal listeners to follow the ONS numbers. But when the ONS, with all its authority and reach, is reporting that 90% plus of all adults, either they've had the vaccine or they've had COVID and they've built up natural immunity, you have to wonder if it's really necessary to vaccinate children below the age of 18, even below the age of 16, when we have such high levels now of immunity. Surely 90% plus of all adults, when you've got so many of the vulnerable over 50s vaccinated, very high percentages, surely we're at any definition of herd immunity now. I think we are, and I think we're back to, you know, our old favourites, our nerd overlords peering at their models looking at a likely surge when schools return in the autumn. There was a guy called Stephen Riley, I heard. He's Professor of Infectious Diseases at Imperial College. And he said our data would support vaccinating teenagers in that we'd expect there to be a really good knock-on effect from extending the vaccination for that group. So he's not saying it's good for the kids. He's saying that it's good for Adults. Now, I think this is the first time we will have vaccinated children, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of older adults. I think it's deeply suspect. Oh, Liam, it just does my, it, honestly, sometimes it just does my head in. What, what's the answer? I'll tell you what we need to do, Alison. It's our first week back for a while. Let's cheer ourselves up a little bit because I had a bit of a downer on the, the Tokyo Olympics. I wrote in the Telegraph that I felt sorry for the Japanese authorities staging a games in such difficult circumstances with opposition from a lot of their population. The, the Japanese population is not heavily jabbed at all. I think it's about 20% have had the vaccine. A lot of people protesting against the Olympics and there are still protests going on. But I must say, maybe it's just because Team GB is winning lots of medals and you've written about this in your column as well. But I do feel that we should tip our hat to the Japanese organizers because i do think against all the odds and against lots of predictions and projections i do think they have managed to put on a games with with very few crowds obviously very unusual games but they are still managing to spread some kind of joy around the world and not only do you surprise me with your embrace co-pilot of jam making but i never <laughs> thought alison pearson would re-emerge from uh, her holiday as a BMX expert. Oh, how could you not love the Charlotte Worthington on that little bike? Honestly, I mean, I was absolutely, I mean, you know, my heart was in my mouth. God knows where Charlotte's heart was. I think she's just sort of taken it out of her body and put it in a bum bag to keep it safe while she kind of literally, <laughs> literally going up the wall. Titanium-lined bum bag after she fell oh, off the bike. I mean, absolutely. Fall off the bike, zip up those kind of practically vertical walls 
and then um, tip yourself over backwards to do a triple somersault while holding on to the bike. I mean... It's like Mr Rusty off Magic Roundabout, do you remember? It is. Uh, I think it's just after all this period of fear and caution and to see these extraordinary athletes, really, just going for it, you know, just absolutely stretching themselves, pushing themselves to the limit, being um, incredibly courageous and beautiful, really. And I, mm. I think I did say in the column, I watched them and I felt gratitude. I felt gratitude that there are, you know, a brave new world that has such creatures in it after this really awful period for the world. I think seeing these people, I mean, you know, it is a bit of a downer that they've they've been kind of rubbing up against each other and then, you know, when they go onto the podium, they have to wear a mask and you just think, oh, for God's sake. But otherwise, I mean, I, I loved our swimmers, our hockey team. The goalie in the hockey team, Hinch, is, you know, she's an absolute warrior gladiator. And, um, yeah, Max Whitlock, amazing guy on the pommel horse. I think it's been a real boost for national morale, hasn't it? It has. And what I'd say about the Olympics, I mean, obviously there's been quite a lot of controversy about the BBC coverage. The BBC doesn't have access to the same footage it has ordinarily, having to compete with global television giants. Perhaps the coverage has been a bit matey, a bit too much analysis and how do you feel rather than let's just show uh, the the viewers the action. I have enjoyed the BBC's highlights. Uh, I do think in general they've done a good job. I think we should acknowledge that. And I do think... The contrast for me, as I wrote a couple of weeks ago, is between those Japanese games of 1964, where, you know, a defeated nation was re-emerging, demonstrating to the world its post-war growth miracle, as it reinvented itself as a, as a democracy, as a liberal economy, for the most part, as a global economic powerhouse. What an incredible achievement by such an industrious people. The contrast between that and these games which were awarded to Tokyo, of course, after the Fukushima disaster, the tsunami in which many thousands of people died. And I felt it was such a heartbreaking contrast between the joy of the Tokyo Games and the potential downbeat nature of these games now in Tokyo. But I do think they've managed to pull it off, spreading some kind of joy and inspiration around the world, as you say, Alison, at a time when the world really needs it. I'm Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this. So, Copilot, this is the 61st episode of Planet Normal. We've had some fabulous guests over the previous episodes. 
Who have we got this week? So I thought with a lot of uh, medical matters in the air that we would consult a doctor. Dr. Charles Levinson was a medic working at Westminster and St. George's Hospital in London before he left the NHS in 1989 to found Dr. Call. Now, Dr. Call was the first private visiting service in London offering home visits by doctors 24 hours a day. And Dr. Call Liam is also the largest flu vaccination provider outside the NHS. And Charles was involved in pandemic planning for the avian flu outbreak. So he knows a lot about pandemics. The reason I thought he would be a good guest for us this week, co-pilot, is Charles has been almost alone in the medical community in raising the issue of non-COVID deaths during lockdown, specifically the tens of thousands of excess deaths in the home. He's also repeatedly called on scientists and the government to present more positive news to combat the fear he has seen in too many patients. I began by asking Charles Levinson what impact the pandemic had had on Dr. Call. Well, there were the same presentations that we get along with some COVID presentations. But I think what's different is that we're seeing people sometimes who have not seen a doctor when they should have done and Mm. when they would normally have done and who have much more advanced Mm. illnesses than than we're used to seeing. Yes, I I know that you have been exceptional and I've admired this about you in being one of the very few people drawing attention to the huge number of excess deaths in the home during lockdown. Charles, can you tell Planet Normal listeners what sort of numbers we're talking about and then expand about what you think's been going on? Well, the figures are that up to the 1st of June, which are the last figures I I have, there have been 51,000 excess non-COVID deaths in the home. Mm. Clearly now it's, it's more than that. And I think Partly there's been people have been asked to sort of have a wartime spirit where they just mm. get on and, and manage. And of course, generally, we spend lots of time trying to encourage people to rush to the doctor as quickly as possible if mm. they've got something that might be a symptom of something serious. Because obviously, serious illnesses sometimes present with you know mild symptoms. And so, so I think that's part of it. I think the health screening that should go on and that you know we we have a clinic in the city that a doctor called that only does health screens that closed for for quite a while because all the big employers were telling people to work from home and people just didn't have access to it. So so yeah so I think things haven't been picked up um, early. People have ignored symptoms that they would normally go and get help for or go and go and inquire about. I, th- I think those are the two, those are probably the two main factors. As far as I know, the government hasn't even mentioned excess deaths in the home, yet you're saying it's over 50,000, possibly even edging up to 60,000. That's a very significant percentage of the number of people who've died of COVID, isn't it? It is. And I think the most Uh, sort of frightening thing about it is that we're in the foothills of the non-COVID health crisis, because an awful lot of the things that come out of this are things that have a long lead-in time. And so people with diabetes that isn't picked up damage their kidneys and arteries and hearts, but that takes a long time, that takes years. And 
people with high blood pressure, similarly, the, the, if, if it isn't picked up, the effect is quite delayed. And with psychological problems, which is one of the huge areas, mm-hmm. which I think we're just beginning to see the damage mm-hmm. from, again, during a crisis, people often hold it together. And then afterwards, all the damage sort of becomes apparent. Have you been frustrated that the government and the scientists have been apparently fixated on COVID deaths to the exclusion of all these other deaths you're describing? It's very frustrating. Clearly, it's not it's not an easy ship to steer. And so they had to rely on predictions. And it just so happens that they haven't relied on the right predict or they have over relied on certain predictions, which have been very extreme. And then, of course, there's um, a requirement to try and get the public to change their behaviour. And so behavioural psychologists and scientists advise on what sort of level of scare tactics are are necessary to try and get people to do what they want. And I think they've overdone it. So people have become frightened to seek the medical attention they should. The public are very much affected by public information. And we see this with, for instance, with our flu vaccination campaign that um, Dr. Call runs. So Mm. flu tends to follow a cycle of of about four or five years where the levels fall and then there's a a big epidemic and then there are some quieter Mm. years again. Mm. And when the scientists anticipate a big year, because we've had a few quiet years, there's a big public information campaign about, you know, with celebrities being shown having vaccinations and so on, to encourage the public to have them. Mm. And suddenly we're inundated in the private sector as well. So so the, the public very much are led by these public information campaigns. And I just think they have to be used with, with great care. It was said to be by a scientist, which is something as an arts person that hadn't even occurred to me, that 2019 was actually rather a slow flu year. And as this chap put it to me, God's waiting room was very full in the spring of 2020. Do you think that quite a lot of the people who died very early with COVID would have been in a harsh flu year, maybe picked off the year earlier? That is quite possible. That is quite possible. And of course, there's been very, very little flu due to uh, all the lockdowns we've Mm. had. So we're anticipating, everyone is anticipating a a significant problem with flu Mm. over the next few years which again is caused by all of this. Yes. At The Telegraph and on Planet Normal, I'm sure you, like us, Liam and I have heard countless distressing stories of people who've been unable to see their GP over the past 16 months. We heard from Nick Stokes, who told us about his wife, Joy, who tragically died because she was fobbed off with online physio. She couldn't get a scan and she turned out she had cancer in her hip, which then spread. And by the time she was seen in the hospital, nothing could be done. Do you think, Charles, that GPs have failed to serve the public as well as they could during the pandemic? And what might be the reasons behind that? Well, I think GPs, I think this the system hasn't worked very well. But I think GPs have been put in a difficult position. They've had this message as well about protecting the NHS. And people have been overly concerned that the NHS would be swamped. And of course, the um, Nightingale hospitals were hardly used, that were, no. were set up. But mm. it has been a great shame that doctors have done so much less face-to-face and are still doing so much less face-to-face consulting. 
at the beginning of the pandemic, we rushed to develop our remote consultation capability to put in a proper video app rather than just using sort of off-the-shelf Skype. And and we did it thinking that there'd be a demand. And, and there's been very little demand because wow. in the private sector, people have a choice and um, and people don't opt for it. You, you know, they, you can click on a video consultation or a visit and they click on a visit. So patients do want to see GPs face-to-face. And I think there is a crisis, but I think everyone will see sense again and doctors will start doing face-to-face consultations routinely again and patients will become courageous enough to venture into the doctor's waiting room again and so on and 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 things will get back to normal there but I think the crisis that we've then got is is the backlog of Mm. people who have of all the routine stuff that was that was all put on hold. Yesterday, I saw that you tweeted, the Office for National Statistics estimates that 93.6% of adults in England have COVID antibodies, an astounding level of immunity. Great news. Charles, have you been frustrated by a failure of the media and politicians to share such positive news? And what do you think lies behind that. I mean, just for an example, I think we're almost the only country in the world not to publish the recovery figures from COVID. Yeah, I think I think the politicians in particular are terribly afraid of the wrong soundbite. And and that was why there was a big backtrack about talk of herd immunity. Mm. Because because of course what they realized was what they were saying was that a lot of people had to catch COVID because at that time there wasn't a there wasn't a vaccine available. And people pointed out, well, that suggested they were happy to let some people catch it and die or become very ill from it. So they sort of panic. But actually, I think there is very rarely a new paradigm. I think this is another viral illness. We shouldn't panic and throw everything we know out of the window. And and it is going to behave like other viral illnesses that we know. So, you know, it will mutate. Immunity will build up and then there'll be mutations and people may get it again, but probably less severely and may need to be vaccinated again or to get a mild dose of it. And there's a known thing about mutating viruses that must apply, I think, to this just as it does to other viruses, which is the virus is a self-interested organism. And so they Mm, tend to mutate to become more contagious, easier to catch, because that's obviously good for the virus, but also to make people less ill. And that's partly a physical effect virus can't manage to do everything at once and it can become more contagious or more serious. It's difficult for it to do both. But I think more to the point, the more successful one, the one that becomes more widely about is the one that doesn't make people so ill they stay at home and, and so that they, they're not very ill and they go out and give it to others. So perhaps don't know they've got it. And so that's why the common cold is the most successful virus of all. So it will mutate it There will continue to be COVID about, therefore, and probably it will become less and less serious. But at least for the foreseeable future, we will keep vaccinating people against the latest strains as we do with flu. Yes. And and it's unnecessary and wrong to sort of think that this is completely different from anything that's ever happened before. Yes, it has become the sort of, you know, you talk to some people and you think, gosh, they think it's the Black Death. And it's good when we have balancing voices like yours. Now, recently, Charles, The Telegraph ran a story saying that the figures of those called COVID hospital admissions, many of those, at least half, were people being admitted for other things who then 
tested positive for COVID when they were in with their broken leg or their kidney problem. And as we know, quite a significant number have actually caught COVID while in hospital. Do you think it suits the NHS management to exaggerate the pressure on hospitals? And I think it would be it would be very helpful to understand better how many people go in because of COVID, how many people go in with COVID and how many people go in because of something else and get COVID when they're in hospital. And those are three completely different things and they're all put down as, as COVID. So, yes, yeah, so the, the figures are misleading. I think data collection isn't, isn't good enough. And I think that when there's been a political wish to encourage the population not to go out and spread COVID, I think it suited them probably to to let people be more frightened than they need. But I think it's counterproductive now. And I think it would be helpful if we had clearer, better information. I actually think that instead of daily figures, probably what we ought to be looking at is weekly figures, because the daily figures are, are misleading. They're, you know, they go up and down and they particularly, they have a variation throughout the week. They're, they're higher with the catch up after the weekend and so on. So I, th- I think we are being frightened unnecessarily to quite an extent. Liam and I have been talking today about the UK's, uh, shall we say, inconsistent travel restrictions. <laughs> Charles, you wrote a very good piece for The Telegraph saying that the vaccinations work and we need to cast off the shackles of fear and open up the green list. What would you say to those ministers who are meeting today to decide the future travel restrictions? I think you're absolutely right. We need to open up the green list. And I think people talk about, think about outbound travel a lot. So all of us wanting to go on holiday. But Actually, there's there's a hugely important area, which is inbound travel and mm. all the hotels and the, the tourism industry is on its knees. So that is incredibly important as well. And with a country which doesn't have a higher incidence of, of COVID than we mm. do, you would question why you would need any restriction. You know, would you rather sit next to a person from that country than a than a Brit? And yes. then, of course, the, the concern about new strains is is brought out they they say well but it's all very well we don't want to let in new strains but I don't think there's been any success anywhere in the world at keeping out new strains they get in so I think the only point to it all is in trying to flatten out the, the wave if there's a huge wave and if it's at a time that our hospitals are struggling and our hospitals tend to struggle in the winter when everyone's coughing and spluttering with flu and colds and so on. Mm, and mm. So we're clearly in the height of summer, hospitals are not struggling and to me it doesn't make any sense at all. You said that if we didn't expand our green list, we faced the, the dire consequences of keeping locked shut what do you see as the dire consequences? Well, I think clearly I'd, one mustn't underestimate the losses people have had due to COVID. And in fact, my father died, not, I think not oh, of COVID, sorry. but with COVID. Mm. Oh, he went to hospital with, some, with, with pneumonia and um, eventually was found to have COVID, which I suspect he caught in hospital. Mm. But he was 101. So he, A good he, life. Um, so it was so he was in what you described as God's waiting room, I think so early. So 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 one mustn't underestimate that. But I think what one needs to, to keep 
in sight is the huge adverse effects of the response. Very often with an illness, the body's response to the illness causes more harm than the illness itself. And I think in this case, the public policy response to this illness has caused more harm than the illness itself. So yes, you talked about 51,000 non-COVID excess deaths in the home up to the 1st of June. We know that Macmillan have, this one, this was some time ago, so yeah. the figure will be greater now, had estimated there were missing 50,000 cancer diagnoses, which can't be yeah. because people have stopped getting cancer, but must be because they haven't had their checkups. And um, there are all the long-term consequences of people not having checkups or not going to the doctor when they have symptoms, which we're only beginning to see the, the effects of. And then, of course... Public health is very dependent on the economy, both because when people have more money, they eat better and are happier, and because the NHS is, is, is always in need of more money. So things that damage the economy aren't good for health either. So, so I think it is essential that we try and get everything going as quickly as we can. Do you think that the death toll, these excess deaths, the collateral damage of lockdown, do, do you think they may finally, it may finally exceed the death toll from COVID itself? I think it is bound to. I think it is, I think it's going to be very difficult to measure. I think when there's a new treatment which becomes available in America and the NHS says it can't afford to offer it in the UK, as happened with Herceptin, the breast cancer drug and so on, it will be difficult to pin that on, on the government debt that's come out of COVID. So those sort of things are going to be very hard to measure. But I think that it is undoubted that it will. Yeah. Gosh. So... Bringing us right up to date, two weeks ago, the JCVI, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, said that the benefits of vaccinating children did not outweigh the risk. We now hear that the vaccinating of 16 and 17-year-olds is about to be given the go-ahead. And I see there's even talk of vaccinating 12-year-olds, even though, as you've pointed out, Charles, we have this huge amount of immunity amongst the adult population. As a doctor, what's your reaction to jabbing younger and younger people, children? I think it is probably justified. I think that Mm. it is worth, you know, doing what one can to get this pandemic under control. And I think that even if in the individual child, the benefits of the vaccine are slim because the risks of COVID are slight. They they don't get very ill with COVID. I think the more people who are immune, the more that the the whole situation will be under control. So I think it is, I think it's important and it's worth it. You are very involved in flu vaccination. We know that flu kills a small number every year of children and teenagers. But as far as we know, COVID in this country hasn't killed a previously healthy child under 15. So just pushing you a bit on this vaccination, are you entirely confident that no child under 15 will have a reaction, some adverse reaction to the jab? And that they wouldn't have been at any risk from the virus. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm troubled by the ethics of that. I'm interested. I'm interested that you think it's worth it. Well, I think it's. I think it's probably worth it. Looking at the big picture, 
that if we can get everything moving again, get people back visiting their doctors and 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 begin to get stop people uh, living in fear of COVID mm. and begin to get to the other side of this pandemic, I think it is that it is worth doing what we can to get there. But I think you're right, there may be a price in that. And it certainly has to be something which is voluntary. I mean, I think the same applies to, to quite a lot of vaccinations that uh, flu, young people who have flu vaccinations, again, are probably very, very unlikely to die of flu. But it's it's good for the community that mm. as many people as possible have them. So, you know, and all vaccinations do have adverse reactions in very, very small numbers of cases, but they do. Alison, I thought that was a valuable interview, a highly experienced medic telling of his view of the pandemic and particularly uh, acknowledging the lack of difficulty that lots of people have had actually seeing their GP on the NHS. Yeah, I agreed with him with so much, Liam. I mean, I think, you know, towards the end when Charles was actually defending the idea of uh, vaccinating teenagers, and it was interesting to hear that point of view. You know, he his argument is that if we vaccinate teenagers we'll get th- we'll get through this nightmare faster and that will be better for all of society and it and it, and it is certainly something worth thinking about although because i think if there's one 16 year old who would have been fine if they hadn't had the vaccine then you know as a mother i think that's one 16 year old too much um we hadn't talked, Halligan, about the um, kebabs for jabs, have we? The government was um, going to try and bribe some reluctant 20-somethings to get the vaccine by giving them Deliveroo. And I, I'm slightly wondering, if do you think I can get a year's supply of G&T if I agree to have my booster in October? What do you think? <laughs> you know what, Alison? I think if the government really wants to rebuild its popularity among Telegraph readers... That is probably (laughs) the optimal policy. That's probably going to be the only way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, they could give us vouchers for the garden centre, even jam-making kits, co-pilot, you know. You know, a bag of pectin and I'll be theirs. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. The cupboard's a little bit bare because we've been off on our hole. So please send some in. So we'll make a great effort to to read yours out next week. Here's a topical one that caught my eye. This is from RL in the States. As an expat in New York, children aged 12 and over have been offered the vaccine for the last three months, with my kids' schools now going further and saying that any child eligible for the jab must be fully vaccinated if they are to return to school. It puts parents in a difficult position with regards to choice. The vaccine passport mandate here in New York will apply from the August the 16th and also be extended to restaurants, gyms, cinemas and other places of entertainment. The majority of parents I know seem to be accepting the inevitable and getting their eligible kids fully vaccinated. Here's an email from Bull. Boris is losing his popularity because he's dividing the country between the wealthy and the less wealthy. The less wealthy need to hang on to their petrol cars and their gas boilers. They can't afford the new green alternatives. They struggle to pay the congestion pollution charges as it is. 
They were told quite rightly that vaccinating the vulnerable would protect the NHS. Now it seems some children will need to be vaccinated. And as for international travel, that's become increasingly the prerogative of the wealthy as well. The privileged can go anywhere they like. Next, it will be taxes on meat and certainly be careful of what you say. Boris needs to get off the green and woke bandwagon and trust the vaccine or voters will find someone who will. Yeah, very true. This is from Alan. I have a modest mobile home on a rural campsite in northern France. Two seasons ravaged by COVID have wrecked the owner's business, so he's had to sell up. The new owner is evicting all residents, so I have become collateral damage. At least I haven't lost my business, my job or my health. I do need to get across to France to bring back my personal effects. As things stand, I've estimated this will cost at least £400 in unnecessary COVID tests, plus 10 days mandatory self-isolation when we return. And that assumes that governments on either side of the channel don't suddenly change the rules for the worse overnight. Thanks a lot, Mr Johnson. If we had a halfway credible opposition, there would be an alternative vote to the next election. I guess that's what you're counting on. And this is from Charlotte Liam. I consider the cost of my day two test on returning home from an amber country as a double vaccinated British citizen as a tax to enter my own country. (laughs) I have no interest in the test result as I will not be quarantining in the unlikely event that the test is positive then no doubt I will be contacted by test and trace. I think we're going to see a lot of that, Liam. I think if they don't act at a meeting today, Thursday, the ministers are getting together for a meeting to sort out this travel absolute fiasco. I think if they do not you know, bring some rational uh, order to this system and fairness so that you're not penalising some of the poorer people in our society, then I think you're just going to have mutiny and the government's reputation is going to be in tatters, quite honestly. And to that very point, Alison, Merrill emailed us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk to say, there comes a point when a line is crossed. That line is where the cost imposed on travellers and the hoops of administration laid to deter all but the most determined are actually no longer measures to control the infection, but rather to control people. The government should take heed of the pushback from hundreds of thousands of its citizens who are already in open rebellion, having deleted the COVID tracker apps. If Boris and his ministers do not take this preliminary protest seriously, they risk outright and total rejection. The government really is at real risk of losing its authority. And I think that's very well put, Alison, because it is all about consent, isn't it? Power is not power in a liberal democracy unless you have consent. And we are a law-abiding country for the most part. And yet so many people now, as Merrill says, are deleting the app, not taking notice of what the government's telling them. And if we really do get hit by another really bad variant of COVID or another pandemic, God forbid, then the government desperately needs to have that trust and it's squandering that trust in the eyes of many, many people now with increasingly incoherent rules and regulations. I did have in response to my piece on on travel in the column this week, some readers were saying, oh, you know, you could go to Ben Nevis. They don't know me very well, co-pilot, do they? (laughs) 
<laughs> you can't get up Ben Nevis in your fuchsia mules. <laughs> do, they, do they do mojitos on Ben Nevis? <laughs> but, you know, as I try to explain, because I, I try to reply to um, to readers' comments, it, it's it's not just to do with you want a nice holiday in the sun, which actually I think we're entitled to. It's the fact that when we've done as we were bidden, you know, we've had our double jab, we've taken, you know, queued up, got the proof of negative test. Beyond that, I'm thinking I I will do as I choose. You know, am, am I a free citizen in a free society? How much more permission do we have to request? My understanding, I think millions of us understood that when we were told we get the, the vaccine, that that would, you know, we would be heading back to normal. And I really starting to resent further obstacles. And a lot of the, a, lot, a lot of people seem to be very trusting. They seem to be saying, oh, you know, let's just go along with it. Why do you need to go abroad? For me, it's not, do I want to go abroad or not? It's that I am allowed to. It's not. It's not for them to tell me whether I can go abroad. What do you? What do you think, Copilot? I think you're absolutely right, and that's the point that Merrill's making in that email. There comes a point when a line is crossed, and I think for many upstanding, respectable British people, that line has been crossed. To which we add from Brian. You say, Alison, that filling in the passenger locator form is like doing an A level and how to escape your own country. Doing it the other way, as I did, returning to Britain from the USA, was like trying to enter some high security prison. Getting a visitor visa for the Soviet Union in 1975 was child's play by comparison. And this is from K.E. Wright. Thank you for highlighting what a clever virus COVID is. It only targets ordinary people and obviously avoids VIPs. Very true. (laughs) Final one from me. This is from Dr. Karen. Even under new rules, Scottish university students will have to remain one metre apart while indoors. That will have a ruinous effect on university education in Scotland, which will largely remain online. Universities simply don't have sufficient rooms big enough to run many tutorials and lectures face to face. The organisation thus for them successfully campaigned last year to remove the need for social distancing in schools. I think they should now campaign on behalf of university students. Continuing to socially distance will also worsen student mental health. The ONS tells us more than half of students report their mental health has worsened since the start of the pandemic. The policy of social distancing makes no sense as students will be vaccinated and will obviously be mixing in their student accommodation and hopefully mixing socially as well. After all, they are young and they are supposed to be enjoying themselves. Hear, hear. Well said. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's my choice and it's going to be Merrill for that fabulous email about a line being crossed. Very good. Meryl, you get one of our coveted, what do you, what do you, what's that awful phrase you always use? <laughs> rare. As rare as rocking horse poo. <laughs> Planet Normal Mugs. Meryl, send us your postal address and Theo Leludis, our super editor, will make sure that that mug wings its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and you bloody well should, frankly, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help others to find us so that the planet normal family can grow kev left a review planet normal my weekly dose of common sense i love this podcast he said challenging the crazy world we now live in 
great content and opinions. And lovely Susan wrote a review which said, now that's what I call normal. What a sheer relief to find planet normal when everything we hear tells us to be terrified and lock our doors. Alison and Liam intelligently, well, Alison intelligently, I don't know what we say about Halligan. Alison and Liam make a stop and think. Some of the stories they have reported made me cry, especially the ones about the effect lockdown and testing are having on children. What is happening to the UK is abysmally uncaring and no one is noticing because they are too scared to look. Everyone in the UK ought to be listening to Planet Normal. Hey! Hey! The British people need to be re-normalised and Alison and Liam are doing a great job. Thank you, Susan. Well, we do our best. We do our best, best, Susan. And it's great to know that so many of you think our collective ramblings are of some value. So as we spread away from our beloved Planet Normal, the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and Theodora Leludis, our editor. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 